recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, folks, to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I have two new people. First, I'm going to tell you a little bit about John Bullock, and all you Get a Grip on Lighting listeners and Lighthead listeners out there will know him from our sustainable lighting work on Lighthead, and he's been on other shows with us, and so he's going to help me co-host this podcast. But our guest today is Nona Schulte Romer. She is currently working and teaching as a senior researcher at Humboldt University in Berlin in a a social scientific project on the public understanding of 5G, on the public understanding of 5G, and light exposure in urban context. In urban contexts, she has a background in humanities, sociology, and journalism. In her previous research, she focused on public lighting, light pollution, sustainable chemistry, and aquatic micropollutants. Her focus is thereby on how these phenomena become issues of public concern or remain invisible infrastructures. That's an interesting way to put it, invisible infrastructures. Nona is the um, the author of Innovating in Public, the Introduction of LED Lighting in Berlin and Lyon, um, co-author of the e-book Light Pollution, a global, a global Discussion, and was co-organizer of the 2021 Night Lights Campaign, together with Dr. Christopher, Christopher Kaiba, another Canadian, yeah, I love that guy, and a great team of other citizen scientists. As a researcher, she has worked in interdisciplinary teams at the Berlin Social Science Center, um, Helmsholtz Center for Environmental Research in Leipzig, and the German Center for Geosciences in Potsdam. Nona, welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Thank you very much for this warm welcome and this introduction. I'd like to start off. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to start off with... Uh, the word that you have in quotations in your bio, that you, invisible infrastructures. Unpack that a little bit for me, what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I love this paradox. I mean, how can light be invisible, right? Mm-hmm. But um, when, I, when I went into the, into, into the field, I mean, I do ethnographic research a lot. So that means I go uh, to places where things happen, things around light, and there are people... Um, who doing stuff like lighting professionals and um, also lay persons like citizens and so on. I, I have long focused on, on public lighting. Mm-hmm. And then whenever you ask a citizen, like a pedestrian, so have you seen the new lights? I mean, I had a situation where in Lyon where they had um, 
they had installed new LEDs in a pathway, in a pedestrian pathway, and in the middle of the pathway, they, the LEDs stopped and yellow light, um, high pressure sodium, or some other kind of older light source uh, started. And the people I asked, they didn't even see the difference. They, they had not realized that something had mm -hmm. changed. And this notion of invisible infrastructure, <laughs> to finally answer your question, is very common in the social sciences, in science and technology studies especially, to describe um, infrastructures that have sunk into the background, as um, Susan Leigh-Star, a sociologist, has put it. And um, the sinking into the background means that we are not focusing on that anymore. We're mm. not paying attention to these infrastructures anymore because they have become so mundane and so common in our daily environment that we leave it to experts. And on the one hand, this is a blessing because nobody of us wants to take, <laughs> like, take responsibility for public street light, lighting like in the 17th century. Um, but on the other hand, it's also it can also be a barrier to innovation because if things always stay as they are and, and, and there is no, let's say, um, public movement uh, around a certain issue that kind of also tells the industry, listen, we want something different, then maybe things do not change as much as they could. Yeah. And hmm. so, so that's my long answer. Yeah, no, <laughs> so it's a good answer. Lighting but it's, it, so lighting it's infrastructures, I, hmm? I said it's thought provoking. Lighting infrastructures, yeah, thank you. Um, um, I just so want to add to... We have a little bit of a delay, so we have to remember that I have to pause after you speak. So you carry on, though. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to summarize. So lighting infrastructures are invisible in the sense that they have become so taken for granted. And mm -hmm. we do not see the light anymore, which is the paradox. So th that's an interesting place to start. So it, to the general public, you change the lighting. They don't really care that much. They go about their business as they normally would. But there's a small percentage that we've noticed that are impacted by LED lighting in some way. Um, whether they be, you know, epileptics that are having trouble with the, with the um, light modulation or the flicker of the light. And they yeah. think it's the color, but it's actually the flicker or whatever. There's some problems being caused by this. Or other people or, or wildlife are suffering... Um, from uh you know the 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 cause of the problems with light pollution um how do when you're encountering the public when you the general public's not noticing even people that may be suffering symptoms or problems with this have you encountered in, in your in your study groups or people that have isolated and know what the problems are that are in the general public and not in the environmental world or not in the lighting industry mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, when I when I was still working in Leipzig at the Helmholtz Environmental Research Center, I even attended a self-help group for light-sensitive people. And that was really interesting because it turned out that only two people in the self-help group really had, let's say, health issues with flicker, as you nicely explained. Um, so one guy, for example, he cannot go out anymore at night and he can only stay with incandescent lights because incandescent lights, they, they glow because they are hot, right? So if mm -hmm. you, if the current changes quickly, um, they do not cool down so much as to change, uh, like a difference in the modulation. So this is what they can stand. It's not, not a problem. But now with the shift to LEDs, which switch very quickly with the alternate, uh, alternate current, mm -hmm. um, this can cause stress to these people. The problem is that they are not very many. So there are very few people. And as it goes 
technology assessment is usually focusing on, uh, let's say, epidemiological studies, uh, and then you have a population that is affected or not affected. And if, if the percentage of people say who are affected is very, very little, and there is uh, no evidence, no, like, let's say, um, medical evidence and no insights into the exact pathways, how this is happening in the body that this guy has headaches and feels dizzy and so on and cannot go out anymore, then nothing, then you do not have a scientific evidence to, um, to have hardcore <laughs> like political decisions on that. And so, so these people are quite left alone in, in their fight against, uh, against this, the, the problems they, they encounter. And there's this slight aware group in, in, in Great Britain, for example, who are writing their testimonies online. And, and it's, for me, it's quite interesting because with all these sensitivities, I mean, it's also called a syndrome. So because it's so diffuse and like it's a vague problem and, and medical uh, experts, they're not really sure whether what's really the, the source of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to tell what really causes these, these problems. And these people say it's light and, and, of course, they, they also say that we are becoming disabled because of the technological change around us. And I think this is, a, from a social scientific point, I think this is the key issue. How, how do we want to deal with these minorities who cannot be, um, well, who, who fall through the, the grid of, of uh, let's say, scientific evidence uh, and, and, and still suffer, but our society does not really have a place for them to, and, and to, to help them because we're not taking their, their problem serious enough, maybe, and so on. So this is one answer. But you, you also asked about the, like the, whether, whether these concerns are in the majority population, right? Well, I think that Flickr does, it's, Flickr is one of those things that does hurt everybody, but not everybody has symptoms or knows, is aware that they're having symptoms. You know, they know that, you know, a certain amount of people have migraines or different types of, of symptoms, but they're not a, people that, that are not reporting symptoms. It doesn't mean there isn't an effect. Yeah. So go, go ahead. Now, I just wanted to say that um, if you look at technology assessment with regard to LEDs, for example, in the European Union, you have these Scania reports like on, on health assessment with regard to LEDs and uh, light sensitive people. They say, well, it's a pity that they only looked at the at the majority population. So mm -hmm. as, as the way technology assessment works is always that you need hard scientific facts. You need scientific evidence. And as long as these health effects are not 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 scientifically proven, and it might be because of the, it is undone science because nobody has ever really done the the, the studies on that. For example, the guy from Leipzig, he also told me he has difficulties in finding a doctor who will take his problem serious and doing research on that. So, um, yeah. Are we asking the wrong, before I turn it over to John, are we, are we asking the wrong questions? Like, so sometimes the, where you start, whatever your hypothesis is, is maybe the wrong place to start. So, for, for example, one of the hypotheses, hypotheses or maybe it's an axiomatic presupposition or something like that is that more light equals more safety let's prove that right and i and and you know you, that is reflected all through the lighting industry and, and john will attest to this i don't know if the ssl has this but i know that the ies does not have maximum light levels for outdoor lighting at night and maybe they've done it recently but traditionally over the last 
how many many years that we've been measuring light levels. There's no maximum for outdoor lighting. You can put as much as you want, right? And so are we asking the wrong questions, Nona? And then, John, you're up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Nona. I think... Yeah, I think this question regarding light and safety, for example, I mean, this has, I think this has already been answered. I mean, there is no, there is no direct connection between actual safety and actual light levels. And it is really hard to, to get this message across because people feel safer if they see better. But it's it's like within many other fields. I mean, you, you have this technology fix. Light is fixing the problem that we feel unsafe in environments we don't know, in environments uh, where people look kind of strange to us and we are not not feeling comfortable with the people around us, for example. And I can give you a really nice example. When, when I um, changed houses, like I, I moved to a different place in Berlin, I... In the first weeks, I felt really uncomfortable when I got home and had to go through my dark courtyard. But after a while, I just got used to it and I didn't need, I didn't, light was not wanting anymore. I didn't mind that there was no light. And this is because I got familiarized with the environment and nothing happened to me for a long period of time. So I wasn't afraid anymore. And um, are we asking the wrong questions? I think um, we, we should we should reconsider the questions we ask also with regard to the new technological possibilities we have now with LEDs. And my opinion really is that we're not using the full potential of this new technology because we are sticking to the old standards, we're sticking to the old ways of lighting, and yeah, there's, <laughs> there, there could be so much more innovation in that regard and maybe also have more precise uh, light directions and so on. Yeah, I, I, I feel that the, the description of, of invisible infrastructure is so important. And I've never heard that before. I, I, I hadn't seen that before. I was, I was reading, reading your thesis earlier, a very long <laughs> thesis. I, did, I didn't get through yeah. the whole thing, but it was very important. Um, and the thing about in, in things that are invisible assumes that then, therefore, they're not there. Or if they are there, they are manifested in a way that someone who has an interest will then couch them. And this idea that light equals safety, and we know that there's no evidence there, but every time something horrible happens, every time that there is some violent crime that, 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 is, uh, that is reported in the papers, and, and, and the way that papers report it and the way that politicians report it, it is the answer is always more light and because we never ask that question about how much light we actually need i live in the country i live in the countryside so i'm used to very very low levels of light and it's fantastic but how do we okay here's here's a question which is almost a rhetorical one how do we shift the argument so that we can start to talk about the reality of what we experience rather than the propaganda of what people tell us is a problem? Um, I think there's a very straightforward question, uh, answer to that. Um, like we, we need to visualize or bring back to the surface these invisible infrastructures because you, you just said um, it's as, as if they were not there. And in fact, we we get aware or our awareness for these infrastructures changes 
whenever, for example, the lights go out, as historian David Nye has, has written in his famous book. So black blackdowns, for example, they kind of tell us or show us like very, very um, explicitly that there used to be light before and that we're very used to the lighting. And if it's not there, then something changes dramatically. And then the other thing is um, innovation. And, and this is, I find very interesting. So invisible infrastructures become visible by either, by either failing or by being transformed. And, and I think this is a problem for innovation as well, because um, I think in, in the general public, there might be this tendency to recognize the changes towards a different technology, like a different way of, of lighting, for example, along the same lines as if there was a failure going on. You know, it's, it's just like your environment changes, your familiar environment changes, and it doesn't matter for what reason it changes, you don't like it. So, and, and I'm not blaming anyone here. I just think it's a very yeah. interesting pattern that the invisibilization of infrastructures is bothering us because we are so used to our calm and easy life with lighting around us that we do not want this to change. And, and there are myriads of people I have asked, <laughs> so how do you think about yellow lighting? And I know that lighting designers, they will always say, in social convivial environments, in the, in the urban space, for example, you should put white, warm white uh, lighting with a good color rendering because this makes people feel safer, they can recognize faces easier, and they can just orient themselves better. And it's also more beautiful because you can see the green leaves of the trees. And then you talk to the general public, I, let's say, like you, you talk, for example, to my mother, <laughs> and she says, I, I quite like this orange light. It was cozy, you know? And, yeah. and it's very difficult to tell the difference, like to tell somebody the difference if, if they're used to and like the atmosphere as it was. <laughs> And I find this very often that people just don't want their familiar environment, the, the look and feel of their urban environment to change. And that was like, you just mentioned my, my PhD research and there, like for example, in Berlin, this was a major issue, the transformation from gas lighting, like warm incandescent lights to um, cooler um, uh, compact fluorescent lighting or LEDs. LEDs was the solution in the end because it could be, it looked as a, it was gaslight uh, as they designed it. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, the the the, hist the history of, of street lighting is um, has always come down to how much light you can get for every watt that you have to spend. Let's face it. Yeah. And we've had yeah. we've had ice we've had ice cold white light through high pressure mercury lamps, and we've had you know we've had the monochromatic socks. Sodium, low, low pressure sodiums, and we've had, and we've had the, the the pinky yellow from the high pressure sodium. The thing about the LED is it is so much cheaper. Mm. And the mistake we made is, and you do talk about this in in, in your thesis about we experiment on the street, and yeah. we put the figures together, and the people who apparently are the experts who happen also to be selling the things will tell you that this is what you want, yeah. and then when you realise but... it's wrong. There are millions of them out there. Exactly, and and there are great examples where, especially lighting designers put it did it differently because they, for example, there are people like the like Isabel Corten in 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 Belgium on and many other people like also um, Joran Lindner and um, and Olsen in in Sweden and you know they go to places 
the, the social light movement, like all these people associated with the social light yeah. movement, for example, they go to places and they take people on light walks and they um, have a, like they sit down with the people in the evening in their urban environment and they say, look at the lights, what do you like? And um, it was, I think it was even Joran Linda who once told me in a conference that about this yellow and white light difference. He said, if you confront people with a difference in the same spot, so if you put on a yellow light, high pressure sodium with a bad color rendering and a white light, warm white with a good color rendering, they will definitely opt for the warm white light, good color rendering option, but they need to see the comparison. Otherwise they won't know. And yeah. <laughs> and this light I, I equal think... safety thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the, um, the, 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 it comes down to it comes back to innovation and and how I feel that that we 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 express ourselves through the kind of changes that we as experts experts feel that we should be making. The one thing that and I'll, I'll make this one my last one and I'll, I'll hand it back to Michael. I think this in our history, this is the first time that we are probably asking people to accept less, that the innovation we're looking for is less light. And in some instances, the innovation we're asking for is no light at all. And I wonder, I mean, this is the sort of thing that just keeps you awake at night. How do we get that mm -hmm. message across yep. when the police will say we need more light, when the politicians will say we need more light, when the Populist newspapers will say we need a lot more light, but we're here saying no, 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 no. What we need is a lot less light. That's the innovation. And how do we how do we start to win that one? No, no. Answer me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the lighting the lighting experts are on a good track there. I mean, I was surprised we, we did, when we did this global discussion. We asked like. 200 experts in an online survey. And we had also individual discussion with focus group, like four, four experts together from different fields and so on. And one of our key findings was that light pollution um, activists, or let's say people who are fighting for a dark night sky and lighting experts who live on selling light or live, live from selling light, that that they have both understood the same problem and especially lighting designers often also say that we need darkness in order to appreciate uh, the illuminated places right i mean it it adds like difference and contrast to to the design but but then we have these problems of this unified standard lighting thing and obviously this is also the industrial way of doing things like having a standard and then just implementing it everywhere and we all know standards do not always match the specific situation. And, and this is where we can work on. And I think, um, I, I don't have the, I don't have <laughs> the answer of how exactly we can do it, but I think that lighting experts are definitely the ones who should sensitize or have the potential to sensitize, um, their, their clients, like people who ask for lighting. And, um, this is a good step because I think it's really low hanging fruit. I mean, people, they know, well, if they do not know anything about good lighting and, and you tell them, then they will follow you. And so, so that's the first step. And, and the other thing, it's just a little anecdote um, to, to add on this light and safety thing. I mean, there is this general notion, light is safety. Yeah. And just two days ago, I got an, an email from an, um, 
city representative and he said, yeah, we saw your citizen science project and you have assessed all these lights, you have counted all the lights in our city. Can we maybe match that with our, with our data on spatial, um, like the perception of, of specific places and our police data, like uh, on crime and so on. Mm -hmm. And I told this to my colleague, Christopher Kaiber, who is the, the PI, like the principal investigator on this citizen science project. And he was laughing and he said, yeah, well, if they match these data, they, they will find that the darkest places uh, in the countryside are the safest <laughs> because, <laughs> because crimes happen in illuminated cities, right? And this is mm -hmm. to come back to this technology fix thing. And well, I would also like to say something about the history uh, and can I still add something on it? Yes, go you, ahead. You just yes, said yes. that <laughs> you said that nowadays we we might for the first time enter this stage where we want to turn back the wheel and go back to more darkness and and I think this is a, a really exciting uh an exciting prospect because if you look into the history of light at the seventeenth century, it starts with public lighting, oil lamps in the absolutist city like baroque city there's the king. Who, who tells his subjects mm -hmm. to take care of these lights. And you have the, the historian Wolfgang Stiebelbusch, he said it, it was merely public lighting. It was rather orientation lights in the city center. So only very few spots in the city were illuminated with tiny little spots of mm -hmm. candles. Sure. And then in the 18th century, you have gas infrastructures. And we think about this as maybe like citywide infrastructures, but that's not true. In the first place, it was like only a few areas in the city were Im illuminated and the gas also was the first time when lighting became an economy of scale because it was cheaper to illuminate some streets rather than put little light spots everywhere and then in the 19th century we have electricity and this is the first time that light gets regional because mm -hmm. now it's not only the gas infrastructures but you have like these regional networks of power as thomas hughes another historian has described it and so you have regional lighting system all of a sudden. And now we are with LEDs, we are independent of these large socio-technical systems of energy supply because we can illuminate LEDs with solar power. So now the question is, do we want to have a global lighting scheme now? Do we want to have the, an even brighter planet? Or do we accept that in the Anthropocene, it might also be interesting to consider light as a huge uh, anthropogenic impact on the environment. And this also means to think beyond human needs. And it also means to consider sustainability, not only in terms of energy efficiency, but also in terms of harmonic, uh, like circadian rhythm, biorhythm, mm -hmm. day and night, and so on. And then like coming back to our initial question, it's not only about light flicker, it's also about sleeping well at night. And uh, species that are active at night, that they don't, don't get disturbed by light and also plants that they can grow in the right season and not think, oh, it's summer because it's bright for the whole night. So, sorry, this was a long That's okay. Um, you brought up you brought up Wolfgang Schivelbusch um, for mm -hmm. our English listeners. That's Wolfgang. Um, but that's a seminal book. I can't remember what it's called, but his book on light and the and the rise of electric light um, paralleling as an innovation and the different changes to it is absolutely a wonderful book if you want to read that. I can't remember what it's yeah. called, but I'll put it in the in the show notes of it. Um, it's interesting. You know, the problem in the past with the industry, like the roll-on conference was a lighting industry conference, John, about this, yeah. which is new, 
right? And I, I think what we discovered in the previous episodes of the show and, in, and as a lighting person who sells light fixtures to everybody every day, that's what I do. Contractors walk in and, and they buy from us here, at, here at, our, at my store. And what I've realized is that this is the largest opportunity in front of the lighting industry. Like it's such an enormous, enormous opportunity for, we should be embracing this wholesale because it means that we're going to change a whole bunch of light fixtures and it's going to create, it's a, it's a solvable um, environmental problem. It's not, it's not as intractable as plastics in the ocean or uh, carbon emissions and carbon dioxide. It's actually totally solvable. But what struck me was you, you said earlier in the conversation, this idea of either failing or being transformed. I don't think you can separate those two things. I think in order to be transformed, one must fail, right? And so there's, um, there's a couple, uh, I, I studied politics and political science in university, and there's a couple laws. I'm not going to get into the other ones, but one struck out at me is very, very interesting is that sociological or political change cannot occur until the pain of staying the same exceeds the pain of change okay and it's like so you have to focus on the pain if you want to make change <laughs> you understand what i mean if you, you have to get the general public to understand what they're missing in this and so we need to fail we need to accept that the lighting industry has made a mistake that we have to say you know hey Although the, in, the societal benefits of energy efficiency are wonderful and we've saved all this energy, it's now time to look at darkness restoration and darkness preservation as a central driving force of this industry. If, if not only outside, but maybe everywhere, this idea that we need darkness, it's part of our species, it's part of our planet, it's who we are, the sun rises and the sun sets, you know, and so what how do we get to that? What is the pain? How do we expose that? How do we make it clear? Do we have to ask the question like, does light cause more crime? You know what I mean? Like, has anyone ever asked that question? You know, like these types of ask the opposite question. Instead of just trying to disprove one hypothesis, let's launch other hypotheses. I, I've, I've, you know, I've kind of thrown a whole bunch out there. Nona, please give mm. me your thought. Rescue me, I'm drowning. <laughs> <laughs> Great thoughts, really. Um, well, first on your last question, I, I, I'm not so sure whether, whether we will, would get better answers if we asked, does light cause more crime? Because I don't, I, I think this correlation in principle is kind of crooked because, um, mm. as I said, it's light is a technology fix to make people feel safer and um and in some instances, studies on light and safety show that there's more crime when the lights are on. Yeah, but but in other cases not. So it's it's really a complicated issue. And 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 I think we should more think about how people feel comfortable in urban places. And this might include good quality light. I mean, there's nobody. I don't think there are very few people in this artificial light at night research community and in the dark sky. Um, activist community who would say like you have to switch off all the lights it's it's about having good quality light and this is as you said the great opportunity also for the industry and i think what you said about this destructive innovation you know or like let's mm. say the failure i think led is a really fascinating example because it really is a disruptive innovation and i think 
in the 90s, the lighting industry began to realize maybe earlier, but in the 90s, it became really manifest that this is something big and they have to react to it. And then in, in 2010, like I focused on public lighting. So in 2010, around 2010, the first products came on the market that could be actually used in urban spaces. Mm -hmm. And this is amazing because, I mean, for public lighting, you need a lot of power in LEDs and also like a good distribution and so on. And then in the in the retail market, I think like in the private customer market, an interesting thing happened. I think we have a, a time lag there. So while the industry had already looked at LED as disruptive and as something that can destroy their business models, and they, they had understood that very early because the light bulb was about to end. Mm -hmm. And then, but there was these, there were the clients and they had already suffered from these compact fluorescent lights that would switch on very slowly, gave a shitty light and, you know, <laughs> nobody really liked them. And if they broke, they were toxic. So who would want this, this in this, your kid's room, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then the, the industry, I think they took two paths. So one path was to have the retrofit market and to just create LEDs that looked like light bulbs. And the other pathway was to have smart fixtures. And obviously, if you, if you're offering both, <laughs> you're on the one hand, you're uh, on the one hand side, you're on the safe side because people will maybe invest 10 euros, uh, $10 in a LED light bulb that they had for 60 pence before. But on the other hand, there might not evolve a demand for these smart lighting fixtures because the other solution is still there. And, and I think the time lag between like, you have this new technology that is destroying your business models and you have to, you, you have to change mm -hmm. as a light manufacturer mm -hmm. and, and, uh, um, yeah, the, the general public or your clients realizing, oh, actually there's something new at this point, the industry has already developed a lot yeah. of, yeah. um, pathways, like all pathways that are continued. I, I, for. I, I think we've we, I think we've had two disruptions as as well. I, I think we've had the we've had the business disruption, which which has affected the uh, the, the the traditional, the conventional lamp manufacturers um, uh, chiefly, um, but then also the the luminaire manufacturers as well. Of course, they've had to adapt, and that's one disruption. But the other disruption is that the other thing that the LED has done, it's created more light than we've ever mm -hmm. had. Yeah. Javon's paradox. You know? Javon's paradox. Uh, well, yeah, Jevin, Jevon's paradox. Absolutely. Jevin's, the yeah. rebound effect. Yeah. Would call, call it, rebound, call it what yeah. you will. The, the idea that, that because it's, it's not costing us as much, we can have more of it. Mm -hmm. and, beca and because of the nature of that technology, the, the micro technology that is there, that means that you can take something, the smallest light source we've ever seen, and you can make a light fitting that is the size of a building from mm. that. Yes. And things that yeah. were totally impractical and now they're out there and that disruption and it, that comes back to, to, to that idea. Michael, I think one of the problems we've got here is that you, we're addicted to light. And usually when someone suffers an addiction, it's actually doing them bad. If you're addicted to gambling, you've got no money in the bank. If mm. you're addicted to drugs, you can't hold down a job. If you're, sure. if you're addicted to alcohol, you know, sure. whatever the mess your family's in. Here we've got an addiction which apparently, apparently has no side effects, has no dark side. I don't, why did I say that? Yeah. 
We know. <laughs> we we know that it's bad for the insects. We know that it's bad for the bats and the sea turtles. We know that it's bad for our sleep patterns. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, more light is better. More, more, more. Give well, me more. Before we go over to Nona with this, I, I just like to add to something both of you said, which I think is, you know, people don't really think about it enough. I think the lighting industry is the most disrupted industry in the world, period, end of the story. I don't think there's any other industry in the last 10 years where the major players changed their names and got out of the business. Okay, think about that for a second. Like Philips, G yeah. Philips is now, so we don't want any part of this lighting business anymore. You can call it Signify, you know, and, and Sylvania is Leadvance and GE is was Current by Daintree, GE something. I, 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 sorry, GE, I love you guys, but you change your name too much. Osram. Osram, yeah. I mean, like, think about, well, these are 100 yeah, years old companies. They're doing something. Yeah, I think they make drivers. I, like I'm not. I love you guys, but I, you know, it's getting tough to sort what's happening out there. So much change, and so, but you know, one of the things I wrote down, and I, I didn't bring it up when I had a chance to ask you a question. I'll maybe bring it up right now. Is that this idea that light is safety is more of a spiritual notion than it is an actual. You know, it's more like the you know Christ is the light of the world. He's the light in the darkness. Like even when John was talking about it, he the uh, you know, the, the idea of the word dark indicates bad and evil and the wolf is out there to get you and get around the fire quick. Like we're going in and conquering this and slaying the dragon of artificial light. We like we really have to ask ourselves as creatures to say we need this darkness, even though in our past it scared us. Now we've lost it and we need to have it back because there's value in it. And we don't know what it exactly is because no one was alive when we had it, you know? And um, I think there's so many Canadians in this space. The reason why I think there's so many Canadians in the darkness space. The reason why is because Canada is largely a dark sky country, okay? It doesn't take long to get to big darkness in Canada, okay? It's, there's, most of Canada is dark sky approved, okay? It's, the whole thing is a, a dark sky park. So, but I mean, so we've, I've been able to see this many times in my life, and I, I think so many people haven't. So can you comment on that idea, the language surrounding it? Is it the same in German where darkness is bad and, you know, light is good? And, you know, is it it's probably the same across all human languages? Is, how do we um, look into ourselves and, and, and turn inward and change that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is, I think this is uh, what makes light such a fascinating sociocultural topic. Um, mm -hmm. Like, because you, you really have this mesh of cultural meaning, very physical effect. And um, just, to, just to give you an example, I mean, these dimensions are just very interesting. There, there's historical work on um, 19th century cities where, where they had this idea of illuminating the city to make it a better place also morally, right? You, you just mm -hmm. put light on the dark, mm -hmm. on the dark waters, like where vice and uh, everything is living and all these dark creatures and so on. But on the other hand, I mean, this you can also interpret this, um, this kind of symbolic, almost symbolic connotation. And of course, the sun is life. So 
there, there, there are nice cultural account, uh, accounts, for example, by Gernot Böhmer on, on the, the link between religious um, and enlightenment, <laughs> enlightenment um, uh, language um, and, and how this relates to knowledge production, to making sense of the world. And of course, we need the sun to live, right? But then coming back to this other thing with the, with the casual connotation of dark places and bright places, I think um, this, is, this shows how, how our meaning making is also very much related to the way in which we are in the world. So if, if I go to a dark place, my sense of safety is affected by several things. So first is my perception of the place on a let's say on a cultural level. So, so how I'm trained as a um, European woman uh, to perceive a, a dark nocturnal uh, urban space. Yeah, I'm, I'm told, please be careful. I've been told that from when I was a little child. Um, and then the, the, the next connotation is that I see badly. <laughs> if there's no light, I cannot see well. So this makes me feel insecure on a very physiological level. So I, I step, my, my steps are careful. I don't, cannot run away. So one really important aspect that um, people mention, especially women, when they talk about their feeling of insecurity is that they say, I do not know how to run, uh, where to run if somebody, if somebody attacks me in a dark space. And, and the other thing is, um, yeah, that I also do not see who's approaching me. And this is this social surveillance aspect. I mean, you, this goes back to the Panopticon and Foucault and all these ideas of surveillance in a, in a society that if people look at each other, Baudrillard, for example, a French philosopher, he's talking about the guy who's bringing the torch. And it's always good if there's a symmetry of two men with two torches, because otherwise one will be in a bad situation. He cannot see the other, and but he can be seen. And, um, and this, and then I stop. Uh, also links to this other perspective that some women, especially, and also men, have pointed out that sometimes people feel actually safer if they are not illuminated. So just imagine you are on a stage. Everybody can see you, but you, you cannot see anybody in the audience. The same happens if you're walking on a, on a brightly illuminated path through your park. <laughs> so a lot of women say that they are actually rather walking in the dark next to the path because then they see who's on the path. <laughs> and and this should make us think about this concept of safety and light because it's more about seeing the, the danger, seeing the who's approaching us and also like being able to react quickly in space. I think this these are the different layers, like this running away, having an orientation, sense of orientation and like having a cultural percept perception of dangerous places like um, in German, you would say Angsträume, um, spaces of fear. And, and then this, this connotation or the, this dimension of seeing who's approaching you, like the social dimension. We, uh, uh, Michael, after you. No, you go. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking of the, the, the asymmetry that we have here between dark and, and light. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not opposite sides of, of, of a coin. Uh, it, it, we, we could say that the natural state of being is dark because we're a, a, a ball of rock and, and we're going through very, very sort of a, a dark nothingness. And then we have the benefit that we have a sun and we can walk, we can stand on, on that stage 
and we can stand in complete darkness and no one can see us and we can bring in a light and everyone can see us but you can't do the opposite you can't have a brightly lit stage and have a beam of darkness make mm, me disappear isn't that interesting isn't that interesting? You know, so it only works one way round. And, mm. and no, no, what you're just saying there about people actually favoring darkness rather than mm. light, I think is 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 a is a is a fascinating uh, image. Um, and I do wonder again where I live here, and you know, I'm on. It's a small country town. I don't think anyone goes out at night, mm. but we've got so much light. Sure. So the fear is in the living room. The fear is in the kitchen. It's, it's, it's about what might be beyond the front door. And then when you go beyond that front door, the lighting is all there for you. Yeah, and exactly. That and also, to, that seems a deep issue. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Now, I just want to say the same applies for crime statistics. If you look at crime statistics, I, I just did that because I, I wrote an article about light and safety and um, in a German crime statistic, I found that most women get attacked by people they know, mm-hmm. <laughs> even sure. no matter whether it's inside the house or outside, even sure. even outside. Yep. So, I mean, what does it tell us? It's not about the stranger who's attacking you. I mean, this happens, but it's not the rule. You know, most people, yeah, get attacked by somebody they might know. And then, yeah, and, and then the, the other thing is, um, no, enough, I, I lost I lost my thread. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you just ah yeah, what you just said about the the people in the street when we did our citizen citizen science project. So we went out at night and we counted lights um, with an app that we have designed with volunteers who are interested in darkness and environmental protection and stargazing, and they have helped us to develop a citizen science app. And the, the idea was to to better understand what actually makes the light emissions that can be detected from satellites, uh, from from the satellite uh, images. So Christopher Kalber is is, um, analyzing the satellite pictures as do others, like the the Global um, Atlas of Night, for example. Um, And then what we did was to to count these light in specific places. And we found that we didn't count very late, you know, so people would usually go out as soon as, as it was dark after work and then they would count in their street in their neighborhood and they also found that they didn't encounter so many people there i mean as you said um we have a lot of lights on even though we are not outside at night and then the next question that arises is how can led (laughs) innovation account for that because with this technology we have the means to save more energy to make more precise lighting designs that only illuminate the places where we actually need the light and do not have this kind of light that goes up all the time. And yeah, we can be very precise in, in, in the distribution of light. And yeah, it just takes a, a, a bit more thinking and a, a, an effort to do it. You, you write need... about the... Oh, you go. Do you want to? You go. Okay, I, I, I want to jump in here. Yeah, because okay. Okay, so I'm going to be my... I... La- uh, I do a lot of podcasts. I'm, I, I got to jump in. I do a lot of podcasts, and I've been making a case. And I we create a show on lighting controls, and I've been telling the lighting controls people for a long time that you're wasting your time inside. 
there the the amount of differing kinds of applications is endless inside you're never going to find a simple sales strategy but if you take those lighting control systems the network lighting control systems you have them and you start applying them in municipalities it is so simple the business case is so obvious in outdoor municipal street lighting for network lighting controls to be able to change color temperatures, brighten lights, dim them, occupancy sensors is so much more obvious on in, in, in external lighting than it is internal. It's a simple, obvious business case. The technology exists. A lot of the fixtures already have those adapters from the Jaga Consortium on top of them where you can just go and twist in a uh, Bluetooth net mesh, Bluetooth mesh networked control on it and you'll have all manner of control over that light fixture so i i think there's a huge business case there um john we're coming up on the hour there's one more point i want to make with nona but you go first and then i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna take oh she wants to you go first nona <laughs> you're the guest yeah i mean this relates to to the development into smart lighting right and mm -hmm. i mean I've, I've i've spoken with a lighting municipal lighting expert on that and he said you know my workers, my workers on the street, they have big hands. Okay. <laughs> they cannot control these new lights. They, they, mm -hmm. they, they work with big machines and installation equipment. And they, they need tablets to control these lights. Like mm -hmm. a phone is not enough, a smartphone or whatever. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is if you want to put these new these new technologies and new um, fixtures on the street, I think you really have to change something in the, in the municipalities. And, and there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, also maybe fear or like worry that they cannot um, stick with the norm, like stick with the standard, the industrial standard. And there's a, this great misconception we always find in Europe. We have a lighting standard here, which is a standard industry standard for good lighting. And municipalities, they are so used to obeying to the standard without really going deeper into that and knowing how to interpret it, because this is always what the lighting industry does for them, that they think this is this is a, a law, you know? They, mm -hmm. It has a law-like function for them. Mm -hmm. So whenever you want to change something and, and maybe put smart lighting and so on, it's first like alarm bells are ringing because first of all, oh God, the infrastructure is going to change. We, we need new expertise, new skills. And, and I completely understand that because if, if these programs do not work, <laughs> they have a real problem because the citizens will call and um, politicians will, decision makers will call and say, hey, why are not, why, why do you, this is the failure of the invisible infrastructure. All of a sudden it will be very visible. And, um, and they, I think they have good reasons to, to point out that they do not have the manpower to handle this and also not the, the skills. I mean, you have these blue collar workers and all of a sudden, um, I've once seen an advertisement by um, a famous lighting company who, who has changed its name. Uh, and it showed a guy um, in a white shirt sitting in front of a control desk and in the background, an illuminated city. And it was a very impressive image because it was advertisement for the smart city and smart lighting. But it also showed that the blue collar workers that have to the present day the, are in charge of lighting cities and, and controlling, maintaining these infrastructures. They, they were not part of this picture. And the question is, how do we also make the shift in skills and capacity? Mm -hmm. 
what I was going to uh, ask in again, it, when you wrote about the experiences in, in Lyon and, and in Berlin um, with, with those areas, and you talked about the different approaches to take some of those innovations and put them in front of people. Is this what we have to do? Are we, are we looking for a municipality somewhere? whether it's in Canada or whether it's in Europe or where, but somewhere say, we're prepared to do this. Not a city, the city's too big, but is it a small town? Is it, is it a part of a small town? We have to be able to show people a new way of doing things, don't we? And the best way we can do that is you know, from, 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 your, from your, your own discussions with people, getting it out there and saying, we're just testing it, my friends. We just want to know what you feel about it. Mm. Does that work? Um, I, I feel very flattered that you actually read my, my PhD thesis, and um, I think the I think my key uh, the, my key learning from this was that it's quite it's actually quite interesting, and it has to do with the invisible infrastructures. I observed these strategies and like how to. Um, do what I called early public experiments with or early public test sites with LEDs. So they installed for the first time this brand new technology in their urban spaces. And, and they are the ones who are responsible for functioning lights, right? So what they did was they um, carefully selected the, the test sites um, in Lyon and they made sure that if something went wrong, it wouldn't have a huge effect and not too many people would see it on the one hand side. Mm. So, so this is a way of kind of um, making sure that failure will not uh, create a big uproar and, and political reaction. And on the other hand side, they also had one, one side where they were asked to put LEDs in the various city center. And in that case, they made very sure that with tests, little mock-ups and everything. They made very sure that the dimming and that the overall lighting fixture um, was not so different or like would not raise public attention. And they were really successful with this approach because light, lighting infrastructures, despite the transformation towards LED, remained invisible. And so they could innovate in, in a very cutting edge way. So they did some smart um, aspects with, with their lighting fixture and also put like these brand new uh, light sources there without kind of having a controversy, a public controversy. And this went well. On the contrary, in Berlin, light was already politicized because they had announced that they would like um, take down all the gas lights. And there was a um, like a culture, culture movement that said, oh, this is part of the urban uh, heritage. So they were really focusing on what was going on in public lights. And then there was also like too little money. I mean, Lyon has much more uh, manpower and also money for public lighting than Berlin at the time. And so what they did was they thought, oh, cool, LEDs. Maybe we can showcase this new technology in one, in one place. And this is my one example where everything went wrong because the manufacturer, it, it took very long because the, the municipal process was very slowly. And then once it was installed, the manufacturer had already its new um, LED product out and was not so interested in, the, in this old test case anymore. And then the lights were too bright. So they, they really wanted to install these lights as a public showcase and show, listen, this is the future of light. We are doing the right thing here. It's great. 
but people were like, oh no, it's too bright. It's not nice. I don't like it. So these were the, the experts. So this really shows, in my opinion, that it's like public participation is really not so easy because you, it's hard to control what the public sees. <laughs> um, and, and on the other hand, it's also, I think, we cannot demand from citizens to engage in every single technical problem in our city. We have way too many urban infrastructures and it might be a better way to do maybe test sites and, and little experiments and then be, be also okay with when nobody objects. But because the, the experts, they know how to do like sustainable lighting if, if they consider not only energy efficiency, but also maybe brightness levels. Um, so, so it's not it's not a question of inviting every citizen to to give their opinion. I, I know this is, might be bad for a social scientist to say that, but I'm just saying that the, the results might not be might not be better if you if you stress everyone and make them all go to the street. So it might be enough to just have these kind of test cases in some places to find out how people think about light and what they can accept and, and yeah. Maybe on a neighborhood level, for example, there's this uh, in, in London. There was also this project, uh, configuring light move, uh, configuring lights project, and and you could, like, if you want to develop a new solution or a new approach to urban lighting, then this is probably a really important and um, and, and good step to involve the public. But I I wouldn't say that in every in every case it needs to be done. Hmm. We have to hide inside the invisible infrastructure. Yeah. That's what well, we you, have to do. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw something out there um, in light of a point that you made earlier, Nona, and that was that the sun gives us light, life. You said the sun gives us life. I don't think that's correct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just, I just kind of threw it out there. <laughs> okay. I think the sun... This is just my, I, like, what do I know? I sell light bulbs every day. But I think the sun gives, is part of it, but I think it's also the moon. And I think what happens, yeah. it's like, if you thought of the, uh, of, the, of the earth as like this wet rock, the moon is kind of stirring the rock, is kind of stirring it. You know, it goes around the earth. It pulls the damn Pacific Ocean from one side of the earth to the other and then lets it go. I mean, if we think about how incredible that is, so the the moon and the sun give us life in a sense. If there was no moon, I don't know if there would be any life because we need the, the tides and the mixing of the oceans and all that is very important to life. So I don't know if the sun is life. The second thing I'm going to say is I don't know if there are any lighting experts. I'm not sure that's fair to say when it comes to electric light. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of major scientists in the lighting world. And the, the result is that we don't really even know what light is, actually. You know, they don't, we're kind of figuring out what light is. And so to say that someone's a lighting expert, I think the better way to describe it is they know how to make electric light using drivers and LED arrays, and that's what they know how to do. And to say that they're an expert is to mislabel and mislead the public. Because I don't really think my my observation of five, six years of doing lighting <laughs> podcasts and talking to everybody is that the people that were saying they were experts in 2015 are no longer in business. Okay, 
So they're gone. They left the lighting industry. And so I'm not sure we have experts. I don't think that's the right description, Nona. What do you think of that? Yeah. <laughs> now you got me. I didn't want to open this expertise box. <laughs> of course, I mean, if you look at the social social studies of uh, science and technology, for example, I mean, there's always this discussion on who is an expert. I mean, expertise, there are the experts of the everyday and the, the experts. In, and, and this brings us back to the you have one of your initial questions. Are we asking the wrong questions? Maybe mm. I should have said lighting researchers. <laughs> but this yeah. would have sounded as if everybody should become a scientist. Now, I mean, like, or light searchers, maybe. People in search mm. of the right light or good quality light. So I, I think your your description is is really cool and very accurate. Um, we need to change our expertise. We have to grow and. Hmm? I think you're right. I think an, an an expert is probably someone who doesn't know everything. Mm -hmm. That's probably okay, good because because an an expert knows. I, I'm an expert. Uh, uh, an expert knows that there's more to know. Mm -hmm. That's 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 mm. a, that's a good expert. And remember. We we had a politician some years back who said this country is tired of experts, and that immediately <laughs> that, that immediately created the the the, the emblazoned T-shirt. If you're tired of experts, try working with an idiot. <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's also a paper by a um, by a um, sociologist from London who's. Uh, with, with the title engaging the idiots <laughs> or something in this yeah. direction it's about public participation as well and what you can learn from the idiot <laughs> but um no i think this is really cool what you said about the experts and i think maybe the experts also know what they don't know you know this mm -hmm. is also mm -hmm. an important point i mean um i just had a, another discussion with somebody on on 5g and there are a lot of people who think that 5g and electromagnetic waves make them ill and um and then there there are these scientists and and they say there are many things we don't know but still they're quite sure that 5g and emf doesn't make people ill <laughs> so but having this clash between a very focused perspective of science on on one particular thing so you might have people who do research on artificial light at night and only look at a specific species of fish or mm -hmm. uh, insects or whatsoever and and they still can't tell you a great deal, but they probably say, hey, listen, this is not my field of expertise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, they're diminishing their focus. Or like, Not like me. I'm talking about everything now as if mm -hmm. I knew it. <laughs> and anyway, so, yeah, this is a good point. And with I just want, when you when you just mentioned the moon and the sun. Yeah, I, I think sun gives you energy. This would be more accurate. And when you were talking about the darkness before, I think one interesting or very important point is that I feel like there's a lot going on nowadays with people who reevaluate darkness as something beautiful, something important, something that nourishes us, but also a great source of knowledge. And we were talking about the addiction to light earlier on. And I think there was a time when we are also very into the dark sky, not only the Canadians, but people all over the world. And this was also the time when we needed the stars to navigate, like literally on the seas and also yeah. on the country. So, and then we invented all these technical devices who did the job for, for us. So we could illuminate the world altogether because we didn't need the stars anymore. We didn't need to look at the stars in order to know where we were. And I think 
this maybe has also created an imbalance. We have gotten away from myths that explain the world by looking at the stars and we have invented calendars that work without looking at the stars and we know when to do our agricultural stuff without the stars. So yeah, we have kind of lost touch with the night sky and nowadays people increasingly find this beauty of the night sky and they want to go back and this is probably also the chance to yeah engage the public <laughs> in this endeavor of um, thinking lighting more sustainably. There's a lot of talk um, in the in the medical world right now about psychedelic drugs. Okay, you hear you know John Johns Hopkins is doing a study on psilocybin mushrooms with people that are at end of life in hospice, and it's really helping them and and deal with it. When I was first um, hosting this show uh, long, uh, you know, about a year ago, when we talked to people about their experiences under star starry skies. It reminded me of descriptions from people who had had psychedelic experiences. The same, <laughs> you know, like people, I went to this park and we laid down and there was, I was blindfolded. And when I opened my eyes, there was this beautiful starry sky and it was so spiritual and I realized all these things. And so I think we're underestimating, um, or I don't know if even that's the right word. There's something we're lacking and we don't know what it is. And it's a connection to the universe. It's a connection to who we are. It's, it's primordial. It's not, it's not, it's something that incrementally has been taken away from us year after year, after year, after year, in some areas quicker than others, but you know, it's gone now, largely gone. And we don't even realize we've lost it, Nona. And I think that's that's part of the 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 problem dealing with it. I think people that are aware of the beauty and the um, and the feeling of 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 being in darkness get it. But those that don't experience, they don't understand what they're missing. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know how to describe it any further than that. Yeah, I mean, I think you are totally right. And the majority of, of European citizens have never seen the Milky Way, right? I mean, this is a, a open mm. secret nowadays. And just mm. to give you a very funny example, um, one of my friends told me that he was in Australia and he was lying down with a friend under the starry sky and they were looking up and and his friend said, oh, look, look at the stars. It's so beautiful. And he said, yeah, it's only too bad that it's a bit cloudy. Yes. <laughs> and said, yes. It's not cloudy. Why, why are you saying this? Yeah, you, you see all this white stuff there? No, it's the Milky Way. Yeah, for <laughs> so sure. he mistook the, the Milky Way for clouds. And yeah, because he, he is from Berlin. He has never seen the Milky Way before. But yeah, I think there are great initiatives nowadays who can also help people to get back to the star, star experience. I, I can give you one example that's very close to me personally my uh, friend and, and uh, lighting designer and co-author and founder of uh, visitdarksky.com etta dannemann uh, she has created this um audio guide or let's say an audio experience for the dark sky and it's it's really nice you can it's just a 20 minute audio podcasting you can download it and then you if you're lying down in a, in a nice spot this gives you some not only stories about stars, but it also gives you kind of background in how to look into the starry sky. So how you adapt your eyes, how you look, how you look around to see best. And it has some nice music. And I think this is a very beautiful and interesting 
a way to not only um, help um, hobby astronomers, amateur astron astronomers who already know how to look into the stars to have this beautiful experience, but also maybe to like help the like just tourists who go to a dark place to discover something they have not known before. Hmm. And um, and I think there are more initiatives like that growing and uh, multiplying yeah, I, I mean, all over the world. Yeah. And we mustn't forget. I mean, the the, the skies is is not static, and and you know this this month we we've got this fantastic scene. Uh, so long as you're out there just before the sun comes up, that we'll have Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn all in the sky together, and you won't see that again for a good number of years. And just to just to think that people could have the opportunity to to go out and witness that. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a great fascination I learned through our citizen science project because we also had another project where they designed an app for um, observing meteors, like fireballs. And, and there's so many people who are really into that. And yeah, it's, it's I think um, also showing the connection between lighting, artificial lighting, and these experiences is a really good way of um, yeah, helping us to rethink what we want in our cities. Absolutely. We We've spoken for over an hour, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> so uh, do you have any final thoughts? I think it's a good place to close it off on the spiritual part of it. Um, I'm not supposed to get into it. I was, I'm going to get in trouble with the board of directors of Nailed. But do um, <laughs> you have any final thoughts, Nona, for the Restoring Darkness listeners? I, I think just my, my final thought, or if I, if I had a wish <laughs> with regard to urban lighting would be um, that, that people rethink what they really want, like also the, especially the decision makers, and um, and widen their view on what is out there nowadays, not only in the industry but also in terms of needs and um, and openness for darkness. Well, folks, that has been uh, Nona Schulter Romer, and we thank you for listening to the end of the show here, um, and we'll catch you next time. Look no further for dark sky-friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.